I think I came first time here. Yeah. yeah. That's not actually a joke. That is actually a fact. Really? Yeah. Uh, from class one to form four. I was, I will, I'm always the first in the exam. So, but when I went to St. John's, I don't know what happened. Um, because then we had external exams, of course. Eh? And um, I, yeah, I was, I was an average student. I was, not, I was not a brain box at all. There were others who, were, who had more brains than me. But I worked hard. And um, politics... I was interested in politics in year eight, uh, on social studies, social science, I think. Social yeah, um, conflict resolutions in one, one of the lessons in social science. Eh? So we started learning about politics and everything. And um, so that's how I became interested in politics. I, I, I recall during those days at night when there were general elections, I was very keen to learn the outcome of the elections. And, uh, you know, those big, 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 big things that, that they played on the radios to tell us that there is an outcome, you know, for a seat that was being contested. So, yeah, uh, I was very interested in politics from a very young age, but uh, I didn't anticipate at all that I was going to become a member of parliament. Yeah. And um, when, did you, when did you think about becoming a member of parliament? Was it, was it around 2013? Um... Yeah, I think around about that time, eh? when 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 elections was was being announced, I decided that I was going to contest the elections in 2014. So that's how I became a member of parliament. Um, it was not uh, something that I laboured through. You know, it was just something I I went into, and um, and yeah, 2014 I became one. So we have uh, our first uh, request to speak here, and it's from Tori. Tori, can you hear us? Oh, sorry. I don't have a question. I'm just requesting um, that Mr. 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 I want to kill him now. <laughs> okay, Leo, sure. Just give us time. We're going to do a switch round. Eh? Can you hear us now, Tori? Um, Mr. Yeah. How is that? That is so much better. Oh, thank you, Leo. Thank you. So, did you not get everything that I said earlier? Okay, so... Uh, uh, I'm coming across uh, good now as I'm talking to you now. Very 
Okay, so I just have to pay a little bit more attention to the mic. All right. So I actually have a few, a list of questions from the last Geospace space that I wasn't able <coughs> to address because we hadn't have uh, had much time to listen to them. So I'm going to be asking them uh, to you, and then we could go through them that way. How's that? Huh? That's good. That's good. Yeah. Thank you. Okay. Since we currently have no requests, I'm going to be asking questions from the last PO space that uh, people had asked and we hadn't uh, answered them. So let me. Okay, there are people that are asking about accountability in politics. How do you think that people can hold you as a member of parliament accountable? Okay, thank you. Um, you know, without having to, to try and dwell and uh, talk about the code of conduct uh, <clears throat> document that has not quite made it to the House, um, that... Um, kind of guides the, um, you know, the conduct of members of parliament. But accountability, um, accountability of, um, of members of parliament, in, in my view, can, can be as wide as possible, eh? you know, um, meaning to allow as many people to participate as, uh, as possible that is through a free media, you know, free media. So people can use the media to keep members of parliament accountable, public officers like me. Um, uh, there may be, uh, you know, freedom of information allowing members of parliament and uh, public officers to go into spaces where uh, people can then meet them and then ask them questions. Eh? Otherwise, the media is probably the best forum for that. So, right now, people um, are a bit reluctant, uh, Minister, to um, you know to to talk to politicians and keep them accountable, eh? because one, either the media is afraid to do that, or uh, or the media is um, um, you know it's. Uh, you know, I could call that a patronizing media. They stick. The media today is almost like for somebody, and which it should not be because it should be independent. Eh? So we have some some mainstream media today who we know speak for government. So they cannot hold government to account. Okay. We have others who are good, uh, but still those others as well are very much uh, uh, what do you call. Um, they're not self-regulating, but I think they go to so much extent to make sure that they do not become, you know, they do not, um, they do not, uh, that their comments and reporting about public officers do not fall into, you know, into a bad relationship uh, with government, and then they get sued, 
or their licenses can be revoked because that has happened or they end up in the courts. So free media, that, that, would, be my, that would be my answer to that, to hold public officers to account. And then maybe there should be a law that there should be you know, a time that all publics, uh, sorry, all politicians should make available to, you know, to spend time with the members of the public that it is aired publicly, like I would be in no sorry at this time, and people then can come and then speak to me. Something like that needs to happen. At the moment, there is nothing. And uh, of course, then the media is pretty much um, not muzzled, but they're not so free. I don't think they feel free to be to keep uh, politicians accountable. All right. Mm. There's also there's a question that's coming in that said that you helped pass laws that restricted media freedom in this country. How do you respond to that? Okay. Um, I I may not have been. I'm not saying I'm not saying this to try and you know shy away from that, because I was part of that process back then. Uh, uh, where people believed that I had a role uh, muzzling the media. And, um, and then later on, you know, the, the media was, um, what's the word? I used that word earlier. It, it was self-regulating in a way, wasn't it? You know, yeah. under the media decree. Okay. And, um, and that's almost, many, many media outlets said that was worse than having, you know, people in their newsroom, uh, editing the news. Because then now, whilst they are given their freedom to report freely, there's this thing that's hanging over their head. Eh? Okay. I was part of that administration. I accept that. I accept that. Um, and, um, but I don't hold that view now. You know, I don't hold that view. That was never my view anyway. I've always been free, I remember. I've always been as free as possible to the media where I can. I've never restricted anyone. I've never chased any media. Even though um, I'll make it public and it's, I think there's, um, right now, there's a media, major media outlet there that I don't give interviews. I gave an exception, actually, last weekend. See, I granted them an interview. Uh, but... Yes, I accept that. That's, that's, that's okay. Uh, but, um, but I believe, uh, I do not, I mean, I know that whatever was my role back then, uh, because of the media, that's not who I am now. But I would like to provide that, uh, that assurance. And, uh, and, 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 and let me say, please, that I am accountable for that. And I'm not shying away from that. Yeah. Somebody is making a claim that your face is on the front page of the Fiji Times and the Fiji Times uh, daily. <laughs> I don't think that's true, but how do you respond to people thinking that a certain media organization is in your area of politics, it's on your side? Oh. How do you respond to that? Oh, I'll say that I absolutely have no influence whatsoever. Hmm. Absolutely zero. So, uh, but... Um, if they implying uh, that Fiji Times is, um, I'm feeding again, aren't I? Sorry, guys, because I keep moving around in this swivel chair that they have given me to to sit on. Vanessa, how come you got the better chair and you sound better? <coughs> You're supposed to be the host, but um, no, I don't own Fiji Times, and Fiji Times, I believe, is an independent media. 
they print whatever they want to print. Yeah. I absolutely have no control over that. But uh, I'm glad that they do cover some of the things uh, that I say and do. And, um, for instance, when I was assaulted outside Parliament, yeah. they gave it good coverage, whereas other media gave it zero. But I think that wasn't so much about me. That was about democracy, you know. That was to tell the people, this happened. This happened to Honorable Tukundundu, and it was something that happened to him, you know, by the Prime Minister, and the people needed to know. And um, and um, I don't want to share there in the company. So I'm not controlling any of the news. Mm. Okay, there's an anonymous question uh, that's being asked of you. Let me just read it. I thought we take names. We don't take anonymous Well, questions. somebody wanted to... Uh, Protect the... Yes. Okay, very well. Well, actually, uh, before that, there's yeah. a question by a person named Lavo. Mm -hmm. And he asks, we have seen the outcome of Mr. Nawaikula's case. Mm. What are your views on how this case with the PM, with the assault, and the outcome, and how it would have went if there was a fair hearing for the case? Okay, hypothetically, I'm, okay, I'll, let's speak about Nuko first, and then my case, okay? Now, Nuko Nawaikula, <coughs> um... He was, his name was struck from the electoral roll, okay? And because of that, he no longer qualifies to become a member of parliament even though he was elected in 2018, eh? And uh, he took that to the court of disputed returns and he won his case. You know, kudos to the judiciary. Um, that is what we want. That is, you know, a strong judiciary is good for democracy. Okay, so Nico took it there, and immediately after the court ruled, he went back into the house the very next day. Now, for my case, it was a, it's a bit different. I think I covered that a little bit on the, the, my first place. Eh? Because I was assaulted by the Prime Minister in the premises of Parliament. Because it was within the premises of Parliament, the privilege process of Parliament could also apply even though I had lodged a complaint with the police. So both investigations, kind of uh, investigations, um, you know, uh, took their independent path. And um, unfortunately, at the end of the day, the outcome of the privilege process in Parliament struck out the, the criminal prosecution process, a power that was constitutionally... Um, you know, for the DPP to exercise. And he did not need to give reason, but he actually said there was overwhelming evidence to, you know, for a case, uh, for prima facie evidence, eh, for prosecution to take place, but uh, he ruled that the parliamentary process was adequate. So that was the main difference. Yeah. So I couldn't have my day in court as any other citizen would do it. Eh? And how do you think about that? What do you think about that process? For example, if you were ran over by a car in the precincts of Parliament and the Prime Minister was driving, do you think that would still be the same outcome? Well, that, you see, that is the argument. The, uh, that argument has been made in many other jurisdictions. And in other jurisdictions, if a member of Parliament 
was accused of a criminal offence, that takes precedent over parliamentary privilege. So which means that a murder inside the house could not be treated as a parliamentary privilege in other jurisdictions. Unfortunately, here, there is already a precedence now under my case. So the question that means, what happens next time? Would Parliament still rule the same? Would the Speaker still rule the same? So it has put Parliament in a very, very difficult position. Okay. Now, I, you know, I, I, I took recourse, you know, in the law on what was allowable to me. Unfortunately, I could not do, you know, I couldn't get any justice out of the criminal justice system, and that's where it was left. But I think Fiji is at, is at the loss, you know, for that. Because now Parliament, I'm not sure what they will do if something simpler happens in the future. Okay. There's a question that's coming in anonymously and the person wished to be anonymous. Yeah. And the person is asking, you say that you're willing to be accountable for your role in the regime. What kind of accountability would be welcome for your past role? And when should the need for accountability expire? Mm. If MP says their politics have since changed, for example. Okay. <clears throat> See, what, what, what I do in my previous role and when I was in government, you know, I will always be held accountable to that, irrespective of the law. That's me, pure, eh? pure speaking. Forget about the immunity and the provisions that covers me and everyone else. Okay. Now, I took a decision back in 2015 to, you know, to, to walk away from that, to walk in another direction. But that does not mean that whatever people hold, you know, me accountable for during that time, that will always hang over me. And I'll be ready at the time when the time is right, um, you know, to, to be held accountable for that in whatever ways that is available within the law. I'm not walking away from that. That's why I am in Fiji, I'm not abroad, okay? Because I want to make a difference here. Now, if that means making this difference at the end of the day, for instance, like, we want to win. NFP wants to win and change this government. We may put out a, an advertisement today. Which means we want to defeat the system that is presenting this umbrella cover over my head. Which means that I'm actually trying to enable something that will shoot me in the foot. So I'm, I'm, you know, out there to the people of Fiji and, you know, whoever else is listening tonight, that I'm not shying away from. Otherwise, I would have been gone out of this country a long time ago, you know. Uh, seriously, I mean, if I wanted to, I love this country and that's why I'm here. And at the end of the day, if these constitutional provisions means that I have to be accountable for it, so be it. So it better be quick. I'm not a very healthy man, you know. That means if you, you're willing to be taken to court. Yes, yes, yes. Yes, 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 absolutely. I mean, absolutely, I've been dragged into court, you know, many other things, you know, I've been punched and whatnot, so if that is what it's take, but, but, you know, let me say this again. Okay, I'm just going to say this, because um, this is something that needs to, um, the process of a proper democracy needs to be enshrined in Fiji. We know, we, I mean, what did we put in this advertisement that we put out? We know we want a new government. Because for all these good reasons. Because those things that, you know, our, our 
you know, the person that has asked, you know, uh, wanted to remain anonymous to ask that question. Um, the thing that we want is to be able to ask those questions without anonymity. 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 Okay, my mouth's crooked, so that's why I can't, you know. You always, I know you make fun of me, you know. No. But, but the short answer to that, I'm fine with it. I'm absolutely fine. Uh, um, and then I'm, I'm okay. That's why I'm still in this job. But if I don't get elected come, you know, 2022, I'm still subjected to it. And wherever I'll be in Dallasui, then the arm of the law, when time changes, you know, I'll be there to answer for it. But I will answer for it in a forum where my rights will be fully exercised. You know? You, you know what I mean, yeah. let me say? Yeah. Well, I will have to exercise my rights if such a thing has been posed to me where I need to be held accountable. And I hope by then that we'll have a free and fair judiciary that will also hear my side of the case also. Yeah. So on the question, there's currently a question on the hashtag peer space. Yeah. And it's a question concerning the, the freedom of expression. What's your take on freedom of expression, especially on views that are contrary to mainstream thinking? So what are your views on that? So say that again. What are your views on freedom of expression? Yeah. Especially those kinds of expression yeah. that are contrary to mainstream thinking. What is mainstream thinking? Like what everybody thinks. Okay, something like Dr. Hawaii, like yes, that? like Dr. Hawaii, exactly. Oh, okay. Our freedom of speech is, is enshrined in the Constitution. Let me say that... Uh, what are you taking? Juice. Okay. Why am I not having juice? You ask for water. Okay. All right, back to that. That's a very important issue. The law respects, I'm saying the law respects the fact that we have these rights. Why the police is going to arrest people at midnight for saying things like, you know, Hawaii, who's sharing his professional view about... Um, okay, let me get this right. About vaccination. People's rights not to be vaccinated. He's been happy about... He's not an anti-vaxxer, if I, if I hear him right. Eh? Okay. But at the moment, what the government is doing, anyone who's speaking against vaccination, they're going to grab their neck, you know? Or tie their leg or bring them in the night, you know? Like they do to you. No, no, mine was different. Okay. Uh, mine was not about vaccination. I talk, I like, I'm a pro-vaxxer. Yeah. And I want to encourage everybody that this is the right thing to do. That you must get yourself protected so you can um, protect your family. However, we, we are free people. We, the thing about being human is that we are born free. And our law, the 2013 Constitution right now, enshrines the fact that we have the freedom to be able to say what we want to say, as long as it does not breach any other right for any other person. And in the case of Dr. Hawell, he's perfectly right in my view. He's done nothing wrong. He should be respected for it. And it's unfortunate that they arrested him. They should not have. They should not have arrested him. There's nothing wrong with what he was doing. But um, the government needs to do, learn to, you know, stop harassing people. Yeah. yeah. 
All right. So Jojo is currently here and he's requ requested to speak. Sure. And uh, Jojo, you can ask your question now if you're there. Jojo seems to have left us. Going on to that question uh, when you were talking about the ability to express an opinion, you actually also got taken in because you expressed an opinion that is contrary to what some people may think. You know, so what kind of society is being created when opinions aren't allowed to be freely expressed? Okay. It's making a society of pumpkins. What? Pumpkin. Oh, okay. They, um, pumpkin, when it grows, when it's once it's too heavy to move, it sits there until it dies. It does nothing. If no one picks it up to use it, it rots. But people have to be free to be able to express their views, eh? You know, they have to be. Um, we cannot have, um, as this word, you know, we, we become intellectually dead. You know, humans have to live. And we need the space to express ourselves, you know. Um, this is what we lack um, so much here in Fiji. At the moment in Fiji, the rule of thumb seems to be that we are all supposed to think one way. And it's quite obvious, you know. If it's not the way of those who are leading us, it cannot be any other way. And if you want to be any other way, then you will meet them in the highway, you know. So I, I do not know whether they will be able to change that. Um, it has kind of been ingrained, this whole element of, uh, you know, forcing upon people opinions that people should think. Uh, it has thrived here in Fiji. And if we do not act quickly, we'll all become like pumpkins. Yeah. yeah. It's very interesting. Um, I've never heard of that expression before. Have you seen a pumpkin? Yes, I have. It sits there. It's just sitting there. It's not going to roll like a watermelon. It's just going to sit. Ah. Okay. Yeah, and it becomes, uh, you know... Uh, Stationary. Yeah, it, it, like, it does not express anything. Yeah. I mean, we humans are supposed to be different. Yeah. You know, we, we're supposed to be able to grow and think and be free. Mm. And... Uh, um, we can't all be thinking the same, you know. Um, that's why we are human, you know. Okay, so I currently have Matt Koroi on the line. And uh, Matt, if you're there, we're giving you uh, uh, the option to ask your question now. But before you ask your question, uh, please state your real name. And then you have two questions to ask. You can ask your first question, and then you can ask a follow-up question. All right, Matt, you're on speaker now. Matt, are you there? Yes, yes, I'm here. All right, Bula Matt. Sorry, what's the name, Bula? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> must have been a, a mistake. Yeah. Uh, I was just logging in to uh, listen to the... Uh... Okay, just ask you know, one question anyway. <laughs> ask, just anything that comes into your head. Next 
Yeah, could be in 20, could be 2023. Could also be 2023 January, I think. I'm sorry, Matt, we didn't get you there. Can you just repeat your question? There was a little bit of interference from your end. Hello? I yeah. That's, that's a question that I have, right? Yeah, so just repeat that, please. So the, I think the question was is to Mr. Tikundo in terms of what are the political parties? I mean, apart from the government uh, party, the Fiji First, what are the, other, are the other political parties sort of like working together to... to you know, to go against the Fiji First uh, Party next year, in the general election? Uh, is there a sort of like a combined strategy to stop the Fiji First government? Okay. Um, what are you? Matt. Okay, Matt, thank you so much. I'm sorry to throw you down the deep end no, no, to, to ask that question. Eh? Okay. Um, let me start by telling you the political parties that are in the House, meaning Parliament. Eh? So they are the government, um, the, the Fiji First Party, that is the current government, and in the opposition is the National Federation Party, the, the smaller of the two opposition uh, parties, and of course, Sodelpa. Now, there are other registered parties in Fiji, including Labour, uh, Fiji Democratic Party, I think, and um, Hope. Okay, those are the parties that, um, or oh, and Unity, of course, Mr. Sabanada Narumbe. Uh, he is the other, the leader of the other political party. Of course. Um, Mr. Sitebini Rambuka is working at the moment to get his party registered. Now, you are asking about the effort within the opposition parties, you know, in terms uh, of them uh, uniting, uh, working together. Uh, we are working together. We've always been working together, in particular like NSP and Sodelpa, because we are uh, opposition parties in parliament together. We are already working together in that regard. Now, if you're talking about a coalition, you know, we cannot coalesce now. The law does not allow for it. Um, but uh, that does not stop us from talking to each other. And uh, NFT, the party that I belong to, continues to speak to these other parties in terms of working out the best framework on how to, on how to win the elections in uh, 2022 or 2023, whenever that happens. So, um, yes, um, we do work together in, in, in different ways that we do. But for coalition, that is not allowable under the law right now, not not before the elections. So, the, I think that also the question is how are parties also working together in other regards? You know, for example, leaders usually meet and they talk about, you know, issues of common concern. So, can yeah. you please explain a little bit more about that. Oh, okay. So, um, like I said, that we are we are working together. The two parties, two opposition parties in parliament, we we meet. You know, we meet as a caucus. Uh, we meet other, um, the two leaders, uh, you know, Professor Biman and Mr. Bill Ngaboka. They, they talk to each other. Also, um, we have a, um, a regular meeting of the leaders of political parties. Okay, uh, you know, regular, um, meaning they, they, they meet all the time. Uh, not on, a, like, every fortnight or every month, but there is a set time that they do meet. 
and talk about issues that currently you know affect the nation. Now you would have noticed as well that in the recent past, where there has been a matter of national interest, like um, Bill Bill Seventeen, uh, there was another matter lately um, that the political parties have issued statements together. They've come together to issue one statement, a collective position on a particular matter that affects the nation. So these are ways that they do meet and talk about, uh, you know, uh, matters, uh, particularly, you know, in where they critique decisions by the government or government departments. Eh? Yeah. All right. So there is currently a request here from somebody named Lewa Juju. Lewa Juju, uh, can you hear us? And we are going to be passing the speaker to you soon and uh, you can ask your question by first stating your real name and then you can ask your question. Go ahead. Hello, can you hear me? Yes, yes I can. Um, Of what is the future of what is your hope for Fiji for the future? And also, my second question is, what makes you the right candidate to take over to Ottawa Fiji first? I think they're asking what uh, what makes you the right candidate to to vote over than Fiji first. I mean, what should people vote for me as Instead opposed Fiji to? First, yeah. Oh, okay. Well, there's every reason to vote for me and not Fiji first. Um, just this whole thing about freedom, you know, I'm, this, I'm obsessed with it. I mean, <clears throat> as some, some people believe because I'm a soldier that, you know, I, soldiers want to control everything. Eh? No, our, our job as soldiers actually is quite the opposite. We, our job is to protect democracy and... Uh, protect the freedom of people. You know, that's why people go to war, to protect the very thing that is the most important aspect of being human, and that is to be free, to be able to do things that a, a human person is supposed to do. And that is what we lack. And I've always said, uh, I remember in 2017, I said, uh, uh, I got asked the question, you know, um, what do you see your role to be in parliament? And I said, I want to give voice. I want to be the voice of the people who are not being, you know, who are not being heard, who are, who are not able to speak freely. Okay. But I want to give that back to the people. Because right now, uh, even the mainstream media, like as I said before, are too overcautious on being free about the way that they report the news. And as a consequence, you know, a lot that needs to be out there, free news that people need to know, is actually either being sanctioned or sanitized. You know, so because the mainstream media do not want to be on the bad side of the government. Eh? So that's what I want to, to you know, that's, that's the reason really that I believe if someone is not so sure why they should vote for me, but... At least that's what I'm going to to fight for, you know, and and that's why I'm 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 here, 
And that's why I've been holding many times, you know, by the police, uh, because I, 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 I speak freely. And there's not very many people like me in Fiji that actually have that little bit of a gut to speak more freely than most do, eh? because a lot of people are... Uh, so, uh, but that is something that people should not be afraid to be, to be afraid to be free to speak their mind. So if there is no other reason to vote for me, then, uh, you know, that is something that I advocate for. You know, I'm not telling people to come vote for me. You know, this is not, uh, what do you call that time? Campaign. Campaign time. Otherwise, you all might get into trouble. But I suppose that is one thing I advocate for that is the complete opposite of what this government is doing. And we have a Miss Jacinda that's currently on uh, space and she wants to ask a question. And uh, Jacinda, we're going to put you on mic soon. Go ahead, Jacinda. Hello, Justinda, you're there? Hello. Hello, Mr. Um, thanks for taking my question. A two-pronged question. The first is, um, I think you're one amongst the very few MPs who have worked in Fiji, let alone anywhere else, who are putting themselves um, out in public spaces, such as, such as Twitter, and trying to communicate directly with people. Um, so my first question is, how easy or difficult do you find that? Because we often forget that MPs are humans just like us, and that they may find things like going on Twitter and hosting spaces quite nerve-wracking. And sometimes you don't get the best chair and the juice that you want. Um, so could you say something about, um, about that experience of venturing into this kind of new communication space? And my second question, um, if I may, is you threw in a comment um, about the election potentially being in 2023. And I wonder if you could say a little more, provide a little more detail as to, as to where that's coming from. Thank you so much. So who was that again? That's Justinda. Oh, Justinda. Okay. All right, we'll, we'll, we'll talk about the first point that you raised about um, uh, the scarcity, perhaps, of members of parliament and members of government coming out on public spaces and talking directly to the people engaging and taking questions like space on Twitter. And uh, you used the word um, nerve-wracking, I think. Um, it was quite nerve-wracking being being drawn into Twitter, actually. Um, if you follow me on Twitter, um, my account was uh, was open uh, a few years back, but I have not used it. And um, but uh, you know, all kudos to NSP Youth, uh, who have uh, encouraged me to you know to use this space. Um, uh, merely to engage uh, with. Uh, um, with that group of people that use Twitter, because I'm 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 very much a, a Facebook person, you know, um, and um, and they've uh, almost uh, literally dragged me into this. So um, I'm almost at their mercy because they tell me like now you've got to do space number two. So um, 
But I thank them for doing that, and uh, I'm actually enjoying it on on Twitter. I didn't. Uh, I'm not sure how well you have been. You know, I do not know if you follow me or uh, you know um, how how it's been recorded in a way. You know, around the world, my my entry into Twitter and uh, you know the, um, and all the rest of it. Uh, but this is something that we should all be doing. But I can tell you though. Um, Yeah, Justinda. Sorry, I, I'm, I'm, I'm not so good with names, my dear. I'm really sorry about that. But this is not something that comes naturally. It didn't come naturally to me. I was um, motivated into it, and I took up the challenge, and that's why I'm talking to you tonight. And I'm very happy. I am being. I'm. You know, my my last few weeks on Twitter has been really good because I've been able to engage with a lot of people, and um, not only those who you know, who speak positively about me, but those who, who critique me, and I like being critiqued, you know. Um, that, I think that was the first one, and then um, you asked about elections. So elections can happen from July next year to January of 2023, under the law, so we can have it as early as July. So which means parliament can be prorogued a couple of months before that, and then the writ of elections is going to be issued. And then we can have elections, uh, you know, any time um, uh, that is uh, the specified time designated in the law. But um, it can be any time from that time, that day in July, I think it's the 9th, if I'm not wrong, up until January of 2023. All right. There's a question that um, is coming through uh, on your message. And, and I'm going to quote it for you. I have a question which might be very personal for you. But I'm a youth worker and I have worked very close uh, to you and youth are, are very close to my heart. I've listened and lived and learned a lot from young people. I've had the pleasure to have been by the side of your son, Moi. Mata, I learned about your son, a son of a parliamentarian who loves to go in bazaar or guard and sell produce in the market but to earn some pocket money. Can you share a bit about your relationship with your very smart, hardworking, and very enthusiastic son who I have respected and learned a lot from? So basically, to connect then with young ones uh, who are listening, your relationship, your respect and understanding towards your son and how you are as a father. Okay, thank you. Moi is my eldest son. So I, I'm... Moi's sister, Sarafina, is doing a degree in accounting and economics in Taiwan at the moment. And uh, she's going on her second year. So Moi is with us, and Moi is very active in youth. Uh, very, very active in the Catholic youth, particularly the Catholic youth, um, uh, the church youth. Um, uh, he's in the national, I don't know what they call it, I think it's the Archdiocese, the National Youth Council of the Catholic Church, the Central Eastern Division, the charismatic youth, uh, what else? The, um, uh, he, he was the president of the St. John the Apostle Parish Youth in Natovi. Uh, at the moment, he is in Suba because he is uh, studying um, um, really? he's, he's doing a course at the moment. He's trying to get a degree uh, in... Um, Counseling, 
post-trauma counseling. That's what he's doing. Uh, at the moment, he's studying out of the Pacific Theological College. So he's at home here with us. So we went to drag him from the village to do that. Um, Moi is named after my grandfather, who is my mentor. And um, so today, if you're on Twitter today, you will see that um, him and I, we, we helped out our neighbors uh, to make a kite for them. So he actually said that uh, he couldn't quite do a kite for them. And um, so both him and I, I helped out to make the kite, and then he helped uh, this Indo-Fijian boy. Uh, who is a neighbor, go and fly the kite. So he's been flying kite all day today. So, I mean, you know, if Moi and I, we, you know, we can do a kite together. We can go to the village, to, to the farm together. Moi is one of those boys who is not uh, mandua to go and um, do the bazaar in the market. Okay. Um, whatever we can sell, you know, uh, of course, from my garden. So... Dalo, Wundi, uh, or Yangona. So he is independent in that regard that he can, you know, he wants to make his own money and live his own life. He is uh, 22 years old. And um, of course, he's my son. And I give him, I think, one, perhaps uh, he is fortunate in that regard because my wife and I, you know, his mother and I are very, very supportive to him in many, many regards, you know, like we go out of our way to make sure that he, you know, that he can express himself freely. Um, and he is very, very free, you know. So I was joking to one of uh, Moi's cousins uh, on a post about my daughter, and I said, oh, Moi says she's worse, because you could call him a hundred times and, uh, you know, he'll turn his head without even, you know, having to answer you. So um, that perhaps is, you know, I think uh, something that we all parents have to deal with in, uh, you know, uh, youth. But otherwise, um, yeah, Moi, Moi is, uh, you know, I'm not here to, uh, you know, praise him. But, uh, yeah, he's a young man who is free. And um, one of the best things is that uh, we're able to support him in the things that he wants to do. Maybe you come back, Yamata. So there is another question here from from the messages. Bulivanaka, sir. My question are, are you asking me all the questions there or are you only selecting some questions? No, all the questions that are coming through okay. I'm uh, all right, I'm, uh, I'm pressing on it. Okay. So they are asking Bulivanaka, sir, my question for you for tonight's space was given how interactive you have been with the youth on Twitter. Say if your party was to win the general elections during election year. How would you plan to be this transparent with the general public, the people who don't use Twitter, to feel like their voices are heard, as well as being transparent with the proceedings of Parliament? Yeah, I'm... <clears throat> we, um, <clears throat> I think, um, if we become government, uh, which we are confident that we are going to be, that we have to do the exact opposite, the exact opposite of what the current government is doing. Okay. And that is to, to allow the people the space to hold their leaders accountable. Okay. Some of, see, government, the state, has these institutions that are there. 
And a lot of these, these institutions that are supposed to hold the state to account are not quite doing that job. Because, uh, this, uh, the trust is not there. Okay? Um, so it, I don't, you know, like how you watch in the movies, you know, the spokesperson out of, the spokesperson out of the White House fronting the media every day, you know? That's really like the theatrical movie kind of uh, accountability. Eh? What, I'm, what I'm trying to say is that uh, the government should allow for that space where people can come and air their views freely in those areas within the state that allow for these conversations to happen. Conversation is not helping. It's not happening. It is out there. Okay. It, it should not only happen for government. The conversation can happen out there in the CSO space. That's a very big space. Civil society. People take it there. And then because civil society has the money and the organization to represent the voice of the people to the government in a better way. The church. You know, the Vanua has really been dragged through the mud. But that is a really, really good space. The Vanua, it is there. And the Lotu and the different organizations of the temples and the different cultural organizations within the different ethnic groups and religions in Fiji. Like, you know, in Australia, the government gives them money. It allows this space, these organizations to thrive so that the people can then go to them to voice their, their views, and the government can then hear it from others, and the government can go on with ruling. Uh, not ruling, but, you know, a governing. Because sometimes you get tied down too much trying to please everybody. I think that's one of the problems with this government. It wants to please everybody and hear too many people. And then at the end of the day, they don't, they don't look after, you know, um, people and all their needs that they present to them. So you've got to open up the discussion in all these areas that are there already. And at the moment, they're all dormant because they've not been given the space to be free. So that is what I would do, really. Open up those spaces, you know. CSO, things about youth in particular, you know. Uh, women. But they do, not come, they do not need to come to government for that because these spaces, they are friendly spaces out of government that address these issues like suicide and job creation and women's rights and children's rights, you know. So when people like speak to the people they know, they can become more free. So organizations then can represent this better to the government in a more concerted way, uh, rather than government trying to run, you know, follow through with every request. And the media, of course, that's one good way. I think also in terms of what, what, they, what the person might have meant is, in terms of your engagement right now in social media, would you also have the same level of engagement in social media when you were in government? I would love to. Yes, yes. Have in opposition. Yeah, yeah. I would love that to happen. I would want that to happen, and I think we should make that happen. Should make that happen. One of the things, see, right now, <clears throat> let's say parliament. When we're in government, the issues of our accountability and decisions on the, the decisions of the government, it's, 
that government or the minister should be held accountable inside the house. That should be their first, uh, what do you call, first bus stop or bus stand or whatever. Point of stop. You know, the minister should not go and do another conference announcing something somewhere. Or the government is doing this in a separate, you know, in a separate media conference somewhere. He should be saying it in the house and in a forum where they can be questioned by members of parliament and their representative. That's not happening today. Government, when it wants to do something, it goes on and does it outside of the house. That's not the way to do it. You know, I, I would like to, that is what I would like to do, uh, give more space and, you know, at least have more sitting times for the parliament you know, give more room for the people to come to their representatives so that they can speak to them in the House. I think it's a general point. How often does Parliament sit currently? Well, it, sit, it tries to sit once a month, but I think in a year it sits uh, eight weeks. Mm. So for four months it does not sit. Yeah. Right, so we have uh, somebody that has requested to talk, and here her name is uh, Sulmaiti. Sulmaiti, uh, we're going to give you the mic now. Sulmaiti? Hello? Oh, wait, she's still connecting. Hey, um, can you guys hear me? Yes, we can. Question was, uh, when you were in were you like uh, recommending these things or uh, what were you doing about it? I think she asked, when you were in Parliament, were you recommending that these spaces... I think that she meant that when you were in Parliament as a Fiji First Member, were you recommending yeah, this? Yes. Parliament as a Fiji First Member. Yeah. Well, yeah. well the, the short answer to that is no, because I, I, you know, I, I don't think that at the time <clears throat> I, um, that I had the opportunity to, you know, to raise it for, you know, for the government to do that, eh? Okay, but I tried myself personally when I was a minister then, eh, and that was for about six months, eh, to to hear out the people as much as I can. I, and I'll tell you one example here, Sulmaiti. I in Parliament um, when I was a minister during question time, eh, so I would be asked a question about something somewhere. Okay. And, and, and I, I remember this particular case about uh, water supply in Rewa. And she asked me that question. And I tried to do that for every other question that was raised to me in my role then, my job as uh, Minister for Infrastructure. So she would say, okay, there's a problem with water in Rewa in this particular area. And she would describe it. So I would allow enough time for that question to be asked of me. So I'm I'm usually very flexible on that. So given given you know it's time to uh, for people to ask me that question. And what I would do? Yeah, sorry. Yeah, go on, somebody. Yeah. Can you? Did you, you want to say something? If you were not able to, yeah. Could you just uh, uh, explain further on why were you not able to? Uh, <clears throat> carry out these things, like uh, to recommend it to the government? 
or during at, at that time. Yeah, I um I think it's a combination of many factors. I think um, you know the two men rule was starting out at the time as well. Um, I you know I you know you would probably say that I failed in that regard, but it is something that I have learned. You know, but this is how. Uh, you know, the democratic process should be. And I, actually the point of uh, this point about uh, not having, uh, having ministers being accountable inside the house to release information or talk to the people about certain things, this is an idea that I've got from the House of Commons uh, with John Bakau when he was the speaker. He used to denounce the government eh, for going out to hold press conferences on certain issues that they, they should have spoken about inside the house. But this is something that I have learned that we didn't do that. Um, and uh, it's something that I would like to do in the future in the event that, uh, you know, uh, that, that we want to become government and something that I want to do. I cannot do much about what has happened in the past. I mean, that has gone. I've learned from it and I would like to institute it now. And, um, and I think the idea you're thinking that um, perhaps that um, that space of freedom was not granted. It was not even discussed at the time. I, and like I said, I was a minister for six months, so I was probably more fixed to trying to fix the roads and the water and electricity without being conscious of that role that I had as well of, you know, telling the people or listening to the people. So, But this is something I would like to do uh, if I do get elected to, to government, uh, to parliament, and uh, if the people feel it, uh, you know, I think that uh, we should be the government uh, after the next election, something that I would want to do. Uh, thank you, Sungumaidu. Would you like to ask another question as a follow-up to that? Or are you satisfied with that answer? Uh, no, but I would just like to say that, like, um, if you had those problems uh, bringing it up, then uh, obviously ministers who are in the same position as he was would be having the same problem. Uh, what is he doing to help them, those who are in that same situation back then? Maybe they felt that they couldn't uh, speak out because they would lose their jobs or something. Oh, Basically, yeah, it, what, what, yeah. what are you doing to encourage people that are currently within the Fiji First government uh, to be able to speak out as you how are trying to do? What are you doing to encourage them? Yeah. I'm not sure if he's asking about Fiji first, or is he talking about people back then who were not being heard? Sorry, yeah. Just ask that again, um, Sulamaiti. It's probably like that. Yeah, okay, I'll be quiet. What's that? <laughs> okay, all right, so... Um, we have I, I wasn't sure whether he's talking about people back then who were not being listened to or... Probably if you could uh, answer the question in this way. Yeah. Um, you've talked about how people in government should be more accountable. Yeah. And you answered on the question on having to be accountable as a minister. Mm. What are you doing in terms of the people who are currently ministers mm. that might be in the situation underneath the two-man rule that you've talked about. Yeah. What are you doing to encourage them to speak more in their capacity as a minister? Oh, okay, we personally, like you as a member of parliament, I, I relate to the, to the government members of parliament and ministers. 
Ähm, ähm, And, and, and telling them, you know, how much more they could add value, you know, and even to be more open and frank about certain issues. Eh? Uh, I discuss this with them, and not only me, I mean, many other members of parliament do that. Whether they actually go and uh, speak to the prime minister or the attorney general for that matter, or air these views during their caucus meetings is another matter. Eh? Um, I don't know if they do that. I, well, I seriously doubt that they do, uh, because we do not see any indications of, you know, of these things that we ask them to do. You know, they do that after, after we ask them to go and, uh, you know, talk to their bosses about it. So I don't think that they, I'm not sure if they even have that forum where they talk about these things. But... Um, Yeah, other than our usual meeting, and you know, we speak on the phone and we speak in you know, at the corridors of Parliament and during morning tea and lunch. That's that's about the only time that we try to influence them. Eh? Hmm. Right. So there's a question here on your messages. Somebody is asking, "Hello, sir. There's a lot of Sudalpa voters that are listening in that are passionate about native rights. My question is, what is your stance on native rights?" And how would you appeal to these voters? Mm -hmm. yeah, sure, I'm just trying to take off my coat. It's getting a bit warm. Um, okay. Um, I am a Nitoke, yeah? That's the best way that I would relate to, to this native rights, yeah? Okay, so I'm a Nitoke. I'm a landowner. I'm registered in the Wallonie Kaumbula. Um... I live in the village, I mean, that is my registered address. So I live in a traditional community. You know, I aspire to intellectual property rights of the Toke. It's one of these big things that, um, you know, that uh, we are on about in terms of the economic rights of the Toke uh, and um, uh, through the intellectual property rights, traditional knowledge and cultural expressions. Now, At the moment, uh, <clears throat> the Toke the have been subjected to so many. Um, um, I'm trying to look for the right word. Um, um, they've been subjected to, you know, to so many decisions of the government that has impeded a lot on their rights. You know, a whole lot of decrees that are still there, decisions about land, and, you know, the, the latest of which is Bill 17. Um, and um, that continues to, you know, to haunt them. Okay. Um, uh, you know, he's talking about um, the Sadelpa supporters who are listening in tonight. Um, okay, we are not, I'm not Sadelpa, I am NFT. Um, the National Federation Party has always been, you know, uh, um, in the past, um, you know, aspired to the rights of the Toke, you know, as being the 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 first um, um, what's the word? Uh, the first, um, you know, the first natives of Fiji, for that matter. Yeah. And there are certain rights that are accorded with that. 
Unfortunately, in the recent past, this has been trampled upon in a very, very big way. And um, what even makes it worse today is that when someone aspires, uh, okay, I'll say for someone like Nico, for instance, eh, who aspires for the rights of the indigenous people, this is being taken today as being racist. And that is wrong. Eh? That is wrong. That should not be. Um, uh, and there needs to be one, one of the main reasons why there is so much... Um, um, perhaps anger around it is because there was no conversation or dialogue done when these decisions were made, when perhaps certain privileges were being taken away uh, by the government at the time without consulting the Itoke about them in, in many ways. Eh? Okay. So it's this discussion, this dialogue that needs to happen. People are asking for it. They have not been heard. And a new government can only do that. Um, I doubt it very much that this government is ever going to do any dialogue at all. So, and we are going to be part of that new government. And we are ready to dialogue on these matters and to listen freely, you know, without condition. And to the Tokay and the matters of their grievances to now. Uh, and uh, we need to talk as a people. And I'm saying I'm, we need to talk as a people of Fiji about the rights of the Tokay. Because Fiji is a multi racial and a multi-ethnic community. Because anything that affects one particular ethnic group is going to affect everyone else. So, yeah, I think, um, you know, I'm sure a leader is listening in tonight. That is something that we want to do. We want to create a dialogue around this place in the future. This is something that we cannot just fix in one day because there are very grave implications about it. And we would like to give the Toke the benefit that they so thoroughly deserve. And of course, every other community that is benefit from the goodwill of the Toke today. You know? And we live as one community, and that is how we should be. And if any matter that affects the Toke, particularly the grievances that, are, that they continue to air today, particularly about consultations, then the new government must provide that space. We should provide that space when it happens. So there's a question that's currently in your inbox and somebody is asking, Mullah sir, my question is the legalizing of marijuana. I believe that Mr. Niko Newaikula raised this point in parliament. In, con in concurrent to our government relying, he relying heavily on grants and outside help, legalizing marijuana can be beneficial in terms of our economy thriving in taxing farmers and exporting overseas and exporting overseas. Are you open to that discussion if presented with a portfolio on the pros and cons of it? Okay, so is he talking about marijuana, marijuana, smoke marijuana, or industrial hemp? I think uh, the marijuana, marijuana. <laughs> marijuana, marijuana. Okay, there needs to be, I, I will say, uh, this is not going to be a, um, uh, what do you call it? It's, it's not a decision that you just uh, reach. Okay, I know Nico one time was saying that we should legalize um, marijuana, marijuana, you know, in one only way, uh, in Fiji, because of people that plant it. This is something that needs, uh, um, like I said, it needs dialogue. We need to talk about it, because there are very, very wider ramifications 
of this particular decision. Not only economical, but social. And there is absolutely no doubt about that, the social implications. Industrial hemp, I think right now there is um, growing talk in Fiji and uh, interest eh, around industrial hemp. I think there's no, there is no, what do you call, contention around that idea. But uh, smoking marijuana, some people are talking about the medicinal value. I know like in some countries that is being administered as, as a way, uh, as a form of a medicine. We can look at that. We can look at that. That is, because, you know, a free society talks about all these things freely. And uh, whether it happens or not is another matter at the end of the day, having considered, uh, you know, the benefits and the cost of that decision. But where there are benefits, certain things that can be within, you know, certain confinement and control, and, uh, you know, that you can actually get to use these things, then I think there is an avenue to, to be able to explore that. But there needs to be a discussion and a space to look at that. Thank you. Um, so there's a question currently from a, a Robert, Robert Wajik Jr. Ah, I yeah. think you responded uh, yeah, uh, yeah. to him. Is this my um, nephew? Yeah. Yes. So, mm -hmm. Robert, if you can hear us, we are giving you the mic. He seems to be trying to connect at the moment. Maybe he's connecting from Moise here. <laughs> Robert. They're still connecting. Uh, but a question has come in on your inbox. Mm. Uh, if your party comes to power, would you reinstate the GCC? I think there is no... There is no contention around the GCC as an entity, eh? the representative of uh, the body that represents the traditional leadership in Fiji. Now, when I was posed this question back in 2018, <clears throat> I, um, I said I have no problem uh, um, creating an institution, uh, you know, a council where the traditional leaders of the Itauke uh, would be represented, you know, for the interest of the Itauke people, not only the Itauke, but also every other community that is in Fiji. And, and uh, you know, I've always liked that uh, a lot of respect for Honorable Jerem Reddy when he spoke to the Great Council of Chiefs back in 1997, you know, after the 1990 constitution, 1997 uh, when they were trying to endorse the 1997 constitution uh, through the Council of Chiefs. And he told, uh, you know, he spoke to the chiefs and he said that you are not only the chiefs of the Itauke. You are chiefs of every community that is here in Fiji. We, the NSP government, would ensure that that forum is there for the Itauke. I'm not sure if it is going to follow the the model of the GCC that was uh, before it was removed by this government, but there needs to be a forum where the chiefs of the of the Itauke, the Itauke the Turanga, you know, should come and sit and then discuss issues not only about the Itauke of matters that affect the nation as well. There should be a forum for that, 
And of course, there should be you know, proper the legislations and the laws should be created to to make that available. And of course, um, you know, they are there for everybody, not only for the Tokay. There's another mm. question that's currently in your uh, inbox folder. My question is around the military coups. Over the last 40 years, we've lived with that fear or anxiety hanging over our head that the military can always stage a coup. Our Pacific Island neighbors don't leave with that feeling. They don't wake up thinking their military could remove the government at any time. What can or should be done to ensure that our children don't grow up with the same fear? What actions should be taken to clip the wings of the military? Pinaka, Emily. Okay, Pinaka. Yeah, Pinabali, Emily. Very good question. Um, and I must I add that a lot of people are thinking down that way. And there's good reason to think that way. Because all of the coups in Fiji since 1987 up to 2006 uh, have had involvement of the military to a certain degree, okay, and giving it legitimacy. Okay. And so people believe that, um, you know, that, that, uh, that the military and the RFMF for that matter, you know, have become a liability for the nation because of their role in all of this coup. And people are free to believe that uh, and, to, and to think that. Now, we have a peculiar situation at the moment because that role is currently being enshrined in the constitution in a very big way. So um, whether we like it or not, there is a permanent role of the RFMF uh, in the 2013 constitution in as far as Fiji is concerned, which is under section 1312, which gives the military this role uh, that... Uh, that they are responsible for the defense and the security and, in addition, the well-being of Fiji and all Fijians. Now, this is uh, one role that has not been clearly defined. And uh, personally, I believe that in the future, this could become the source of some tension uh, if it's not going to be clarified. And, and I think um, uh, there, there has been a lot of uh, interpretations about this certain provision, but... One thing that is sure, it gives them a role under the law. Now, <clears throat> in the last place, I said the role of the RFMF or the role of the military in any modern democracy is that it should be subservient to civil rule, which means that it takes its orders from the government, not the other way around. And, um, and like as you rightfully said, this has been a problem uh, uh, from the last 40 years per se. This needs to be reviewed. So this discussion, and I spoke about freedom earlier. You're talking about anxiety of people not being able to talk about these things. This should not be an anxiety. Okay? So I don't think that this space for discussion can happen now because even people like me who want to raise it on the public sphere you know, come under a lot of um, come under a lot of um, opposition. I remember in 2018 I spoke in um, Rishikul. Yeah, I spoke in Rishikul, 
and I spoke about the role of the military. So I said, well, you know, if you, if you, the soldiers up there in camp, you want to become involved in politics, so remove your uniform, take your rifles, return it to the armory, and then put on a civilian clothes, and then come out here and speak to me, because then this is where the domain, this is the domain of politics. This is where the people discuss politics, you know. So you cannot be hiding behind, uh, you know, the, the uniform and all of that. I think somebody responded to you on that statement. Yes, yes, and, and, and uh, I, I was, uh, a very swift and prompt reply came back and said, well, you know, don't play with the ball too close to the road. That was the response that came back to me, you know, because uh, the ball might roll into the road and then you might get run over by the car. So, so that is, isn't that a threat? Or yeah, well, that is definitely a threat. Well, I, I don't feel threatened. Yeah. But take more than 100 soldiers to threaten me for that matter. But that is what the threat came back. But that is not, that's not the issue here. The issue here is the space, like what this lady is saying is, people need the space right now to talk about it because it has affected their lives in the last 40 years. I doubt it that space can happen now. But I think if we change, you know, uh, we know that we want a new government. But an NFP government would encourage, you know, um, dialogue in that space. Mind you, there are good things about the military too. I'm a soldier, that's why, you know, there's good things about it, you know, uh, in the international space, um, peacekeeping and all of that. In fact, even though it's costing us a lot of money, but there are, there are certain benefits to it. But... It is not the role of the military. I mean, I know I'm, you know, I'm always conscious that when I'm talking about the military, I know that I'm one and I had a previous role to it. But going forward, you know, I'm not going to, I do not want any more coups to happen. And people in Fiji should be able to talk about coups freely, you know. That, that, that discussion needs to happen. It has not happened, it should happen, so that it removes this fear from the people and it gives this bad image, you know, to the RFMF when there are a lot of good people there as well, you know. They're not all bad up there, I can tell you for sure. Right. This is a question from Loata uh, Wanganibabalangi. She's curious to know what bill would you propose or change in government to help Fijians? I think she's talking about the Itaukei people here. Okay. I think it's those bills. Uh, sorry. Those decrees covered under, you got the constitution here? Right. All those decrees under section 179. Those ones need to go. I hope I'm, I think I'm, I have to, I stand corrected on that special, on, on that provision in the constitution. But those ones, particularly these are those decrees and the laws that cannot be challenged in a court of law. Those with the bill should be the first ones to go. There are other constitutional provisions that we can have discussions around them. Of course, you know, the constitution has got its own way of how it is to be reviewed. Eh? And um, of course, we, we're all law-abiding people and we want to create a discussion. But hey, if the people want change, the constitution talks about 75%. So there you go, people, you know. 75% is the number. That's the magic number. 
I think where there's a will, there's a way. But in government, there are certain things you can change immediately. And we've already come public with this. And I think it's governed under Section 179 of the Constitution. Those decrees that are that um, kind of protected under that particular provisions, those ones can change first. Those would be the ones that I would be looking at initially, immediately, if we do become government. Well, first, I have to be elected, though. Yeah. Also, there's a question now uh, that's com currently coming in. Uh, you talk about how you're proud to be uh, a military officer. Can you tell us what you studied in military college, like in terms of basically what your study was focused on or Oi. if you did a thesis or something like that? Okay. See, the, the role of the military is about saving lives. Yeah. Okay. And the military... The role of the military is an extension of political power. So the politicians make the decision. They tell the military, go and do this. And a parliamentary process or certain roles like the roles of the military, you know, assisting in a state of disaster, national emergency. The executive government tells them, go and fix that bridge, go and fix that road. Those are the good things. The whole institution is about saving lives, okay? about saving lives but we're not the bosses that's one thing I learned in the military when in my studies the military is not the boss the people are the bosses that must all that that should not change okay it's unfortunate here that it is perceived that way that needs to change you know that needs to change the discussion needs to happen some people do not want I know every time I talk about the military, someone in the house tells me to shut up. Okay, but why? You know? You know, why, why, why am I being, you know, why should I be put down for raising a particular issue, which can only be good, you know, for the military too? It has to be. I mean, mind you, soldiers, I mean, because we soldiers, we look, you know, I look to my right and I look to my left. In war, that's the only important person to you in a battle. You're not worrying about, you know, which politician sent you to war or your commander who is like 30 miles behind. You're worrying about who's, you know, who's covering for you when you are running, you know, and when you're most vulnerable. So you're talking about friends and people. But unfortunately, these have been clearly tarnished by people who are greedy. Greed, greedy for power. I mean, really, seriously, you know? But that, I am saying that discussion needs to happen. We have to talk about this as a people. There are many people talk about the Truth Commission. And I'm talking about this, at least, the freedom to be able to talk about it around the Tano and form this dialogue, not angrily, but talking about it objectively. You know, how can we make it better? You know, I mean, I've got my own thinking, you know. I've got my own thinking. What it should be. I believe there is a role for the military into the future. Every nation in the world, you know, who's got something to protect, we have a vast ocean. You know, our exclusive economic zone needs the Navy. Okay, it needs the Navy to look after it, that level of discipline. That's talking about military, you know. But... And and uh, and we we need to 
they need to exercise that role professionally, like the engineers, you know. They need to do that professionally. Within the confines of what their roles is allowable, allows them to do under the law. That is what I'm saying. When, when you slot them in their right place and you recognize them for their professionalism and they know what their limitations are and the restrictions according to what they can and cannot do, then we have a great space for democracy. At the moment, because the negativities are so great, we cannot blame people who think strongly negatively about the RFMF and its role. Because it's happened. There have been many victims. This needs to be discussed. But there, I can tell you also there have been a lot of good people as well. This we should also recognize. Because as the nation also goes forward, it needs to heal. And we can only heal if we talk and, you know, recognize the fact that people have been hurt. A certain, you know, certain level of reconciliation needs to happen. And I mean, that needs to happen. There's a lot, you know. The last thing you want to hear is politicians talking about tavioca branches sticking and all these bad things that happened. Of course they have happened. We do not need to be continuously reminded. It's like people continue, want to continue to opening up the wound. No, you want it to heal. You see? So I'm, I may have wandered off there a bit, but I'm just saying that, yes, I mean, people, people have every right to talk about these things. And, and I am happy, you know, to be part of that dialogue or to lead that dialogue if people are afraid to talk about it. Okay, there's a question here. Out of all the political parties you could have joined in 2018, why did you choose the National Federation Party? Okay. For a number of reasons, Vanessa. One, um, <clears throat> I, at the time when I considered returning to politics after I left Fiji first, I looked for a platform that mirrored my kind of political ideology. Okay. Obviously, I looked at every other, I mean, I looked at Sadelpa, I looked at... So I'm talking about Pio here, and what Pio believes in, and what I want to aspire to, the kind of community that I would like to, to see for Fiji. And I, I see all of that, uh, much of it being enshrined in, you know, the manifesto and uh, uh, the aspirations of the party. You know, if we talk about the common role giving people equal rights, respecting the rights of the Toke as being the, you know, the first citizens or the first native owners, the first uh, natives of this land, you know? Uh, that we can, that we, Fiji, the truth about Fiji is we are a multiracial and a multi-ethnic community. Full stop. People who deny that are stupid. You know? We are at our best when we recognize the best in each other, but we do not have to become each other. You get me? So these are one of the, some of the things that attracted me to NFE. Of course, you know, I, during um, uh, the leadership of Professor Biman Prasad, and um, good leadership was a good, uh, you know, was one of those things. And I, I quite, um, when I was on the government, I, I know we've always been on the receiving side of a lot of, um, 
you know. Um, um, a tax. Well, okay, a tax if you want to call it, but I think object, you know, objective disagreements, you know, uh, from the NSP at the time, and uh, and and I respected that. I've always respected the opposition in many many ways. So uh, those are some of the things that caused me to go to the NSP. And now that I'm in NSP, I have this freedom. Like you know, I'm talking to you now. Have you ever have you ever heard a backbencher? You know. Um, from the government. He has to do this, speak freely, let alone a minister speak freely. So I, I like that, you know? So I'm able to express myself more free. And um, at that time, the NST was the platform that that mirrored me, you know, my personality and the, the way that I, I know what I believe. So that's why I joined the party. Okay, there's a question here. Uh, Mbulasa, question one. How do you and your party feel about establishing mandatory sex education classes in Fiji's curriculum to educate the youth on sexual consent and bodily autonomy? And if you were to implement such a program, how would you overcome the ignorant mentality of our peoples who view sex as a taboo subject despite the amount of cases that we have within our country, both reported and unreported, when it comes to sexual abuse. Okay, before I, before I talk about that subject, you know, going into the public space, um, I, I want to tell you that... Um, you know, sexual awareness and, you know, um, sex education is something that uh, me and my wife talk freely about with our children. That's Mosesi, my son, and also Sarafina, my daughter. For the very reason, because we are worried about the future and what it could, what could happen to them if they are being ignorant about it. Okay. So I am saying that this should start in the home, you know, Guided by the principles of the, you know, religion is a big thing. Religion is supposed to be, uh, what do you call, um, it should create that discussion. Okay? Maybe Sometimes the Vanua is probably more the, the conservative side. Yeah? Okay. But I think the family is the best, best platform for that to happen. And, and parents need to spend some time spend a lot of time with their children and discussing this whole area about sexuality. And then later, okay, I don't, um, okay, it, I'm, I'm not, I'm sure you're not referring to a biology class, you know, where you learn about the reproductive organs and whatnot. And we look at it, at each other, you know, from five biology or whatnot, and, you know, you look at each other strangely, but, um, uh, there needs to be um, uh, a certain level of education. Yes, I agree. Um, uh, be that in school, I'm not sure whether um, um, whether the teachers themselves are the proper authority to discuss that. But then maybe you could, the school could allow for those sessions, you know, to be able to talk about this freely. Uh, sex education. Eh? Uh, I know the teachers, you know have different teachings about this, uh, about sex education. 
there, there needs to be a room for it to happen, you know, within the guidelines of what is acceptable within the religious faith that the student, be, uh, you know, ha, um, uh, what faith the students belong to, obviously, because the, the schools belonging to church and, you know, different organizations will want to shape the way that sexual education occurs. Mm. But I think at the bottom, at the end of the day, at the end of the day, the children are entitled to some kind of education, yeah. to be able to tell them to, uh, um, you know, to speak about the areas of sexuality, you know. Not not sexual intercourse, I'm talking about, you know, that, that kind of sex. I'm talking about sexuality, the whole human body, and the respect for human, the human body, the respect for men and the respect for women, and that they should understand that, you know, the reasons uh, for which we are created and, and all of that, and how we should be respecting each other, mm. you know, that we are, we are born free and we are born equal. Those are the more important aspects of this thing about sex education, and, and it should be, it should start at home, and of course, it should also be covered in school to a certain degree. Yeah. I think in terms of in terms of what you previously said in your answer, you mentioned that perhaps teachers may not be the proper authority on this. Would no. would you be open to have it as government policy that we actually have professionals, you know, professional people who look at sex education, be a part of of school? Is that yeah? Okay, like like for for instance, in the past. Catholic school used to teach religion or doctrine. So then, because the teachers then were qualified, you know, in teaching Catholic doctrine to the to the students, but most are not now. You understand me? Mm. So you need to get them from outside for people to teach. You know, faith-based, the proper. You know, to teach faith to the faith schools by proper people at the time that is allowed for them to, to take. So likewise for sex education. There are people, there are social workers out there who can talk about these things really. Like for instance, my wife, she works for REF, uh, a certain NGO that deals with family sexual health. So she goes out to the different villages, to the different communities to talk about this freely with youth. Talk about it freely with youth. But sometimes that's kind of leaving it a little bit too late because most of their youth have already left school. Mm. I mean, social media, man. Kids are, you know, looking at the phone, eh? looking at pornography and all that stuff. So some education needs to, to happen around that. And the best people to talk about it are parents. What's the second part of the question? The second part of the question was the one that I uh, tried to follow up with you on. Okay. But there's a question here. As an old military man, do you think... Uh, I'm not an old military man. <clears throat> uh, what do you mean old military, military man? man? Okay, as a military man. Okay. <laughs> as yeah. a military man. Yeah. Do you think we as a group of Fijians have forgotten our motto on the coat of arms, which is fear God and honor the queen? Is it still relevant in a secular nation? And what is our party's plan to get politically jaded Fijian F people of Fiji behind this? Okay. Do I need to ask the question again? Okay, just read it again. <laughs> okay. It's a bit... Uh, okay, there's a lot in it, okay? Yeah. Because it talks about, like, as an old soldier, and talks about the coat of arm, 
This is this word called being a patriot. You know, what is being a patriot? Okay. So if you do not get to do something, you are not a patriot. You know, <clears throat> you're talking about values. You're talking about values. What does a nation hold dear? Eh? At the time when this code of arms was introduced to Fiji, and I believe that was, I'm not sure if that was pre-independent, probably pre-post-independent, eh? during the independent era. Fear God and honor the king. Because before then, I think we used the British coat of arms as being, you know, the lion and the unicorn. And the unicorn. Okay. That, it's a very deep... Uh, uh, what do you call um, it's a very deep meaning relevance yeah absolutely relevant okay because it talks about two things it's the love of God and the love of neighbor that's what it deals with okay God and the king which is authority which is the order in heaven and the order on earth and it's perfectly relevant, okay? But sometimes, like, God's, God's bit is always okay. It's the other half of it, the king bit. Because it's the people who don't respect each other or, learn, you know, kind of love each other. But one of... I continue to go back to this, you know, and why do I always talk about dialogue? I talk about dialogue because I have seen what conflict can do to the world. I mean, look at Afghanistan today. The millions and millions of dollars that the United Nations and America and the coalition forces and the rest of NATO has poured into Afghanistan, where has it gone? It's all gone back to negative two. Gone back to negative two or maybe even negative ten. What they tried to eradicate in the first place is now they're trying to legitimize that now. And I have, you know, my experiences in Lebanon. The lack of dialogue leads to conflict and people die. In Fiji, the lack of dialogue leads to conflict and people die. Now, we need to start to become people of faith, you know. We've been talking about, you know, a secular state. And unfortunately, this talk about secular state seems to put religion at the back burner. No, religion, like youth, should be today. Because it's our faith that inspires us, you know, it takes us deeper in what we believe and what we stand for, you know. Like this whole thing about freedom, you know, I talk, and I'm a Catholic and it talk about the social justice teaching of the church. That's all based on faith. It's based on the love of God and the love of men. If our discussions evolve around that, 
then we have a sure future. You know, because then some people, okay, they use God as a token, but then they want to situate God in whatever decisions that they make. And that makes for a lot of problem. And we at the receiving end of that. And that's why extremism occurs in the world. And it is right here in Fiji today. We have extremism in our governance. We need people to talk more. So, and uh, yeah, it has a whole lot of relevance. Whoever is asking that question, if we go back to that, I think we will be heading up the right track. And, um, and there is always room for respect, you know? Always room for respect. There's a question that's a follow-up to that that's currently being asked. So you say you were deployed in Lebanon. What was the most heart-wrenching experience you've had as a deployed soldier? Mm. I'll come to the heart-wrenching thing because... Um, but it evolved out of a situation where there was Israeli invaded Lebanon for about a month. So it was bombing Lebanon for two whole weeks. Bombed villages, killed men, women, and children. And so they all came to the Fiji battalion headquarters, and I was the adjutant at the time. So I was like about number three in the battalion. There was the commanding officer, the operations officer, and the battalion 2IC, and I was like the third. And I was, I commanded, I was the officer in command of the camp that housed, the, the, the camp where the Fiji Battalion headquarters was. Okay. So during this bombing, the people came and they wanted to take refuge. So I asked the uh, commander, I said, oh, we're going to look after these people. So we took in about 500 men, women, and children from neighboring villages. The short of the long story, is that our army, our camp was bombarded and it killed over 300 people under my watch. Eh? Okay, under my watch. Killed a lot of people from aerial bombing, artillery fire from the coast, you know. Lucky enough, and we were very fortunate that none of the Fijian soldiers died. But after after the bombing incident, you know, the, the civilians that came to take refuge had left had gone to their own home, we had to collect the dead. And because these refugees were scattered around the camp, many of them were injured. You know, some of them had lost an arm. You know, their guts were sticking out of their stomach. And when I called the camp to parade on that particular afternoon, it was going towards the evening. I told the soldiers on that day, I was standing on top of an armored personal carrier, and there was more than a hundred soldiers there in front of me, and I told them, listen, there are so many injured people waiting out there to be evacuated. We don't have enough hospitals, there's not enough helicopters, there's not enough tanks, there's not enough trucks to take them. So you need to decide who gets to live and who gets to die. That's what I told the men. That was the biggest decision that I regretted, that I made, that I, that I regretted, because I don't think 
but it was a very fair decision to make. But it was the decision that the soldiers had to do. That was the most heart-wrenching command that I gave as a commander of the men, that is to choose which one to evacuate first, because they were all priority one, and unfortunately many died. Many men, women, and children died, because we could only attend to a few. But I had imposed that burden on the soldiers to decide, when, and that I believe was not, I'm not, I had to tell, ask them, make that determination, but I don't think that it was, that they were ready for it. So that's my answer. We have Matt Koroy, who is currently uh, uh, requesting to speak. Matt, if you're on, uh, I'm going to put you on as a speaker. There you go. Go ahead, Matt. Matt, are you there? Hello. Yep. Yeah, thank you. Uh, Mr. Thank you for this opportunity that uh, you created so that we can uh, ask questions directly to you. I think my question is around uh, you as a, uh, in terms of your own personal integrity. Because you are a career military officer who went right through the ranks, right up there. And the institutions that, you know, that was part of your profession, or as the public of Fiji, we see that institution as the perpetrator of the coup since 1987. Boyd uh, Marama took the government in 2006, and you worked under that uh, interim government, I think, as a public, uh, as a permanent secretary. In 2014, you contested the election, again under the same person who led the coup in 2006. And then you resigned due to your own medical issues. And you came back now under the NFP uh, banner. So for me, the question is, how do you, or what, what is your personal integrity that will tell us, OK, this is a person who was part of the institution that perpetrated a lot of the, the coup or the military coup in Fiji. What is it? What is it about you that we can believe that we can take Fiji forward, say 2022 20, or 2023, whatever the general election is? Mate. That's, that's the question that I. Have. Thank oh, you. okay. Thank you. That's a very good question, uh, and. Uh, that, that question, I think, was partially asked of me in my first place, and I'm glad you're asking it again. I, I will start by saying that my, <clears throat> um, that my role, um, you know, my, my role in the military government from uh, 2007 onwards, and I'll say 2007 because that's April 2007, that's when I became part of the government, eh? Uh, was something that I had walked into with eyes wide open. Um, and, um, and I will also tell you now that um, with uh, an, um, of anything that questions my integrity then and my role back then, um, you know, history will judge that for me. And um, I, I spoke about this earlier on because someone spoke about humanity and, you know, my role. And I said, well, I am, um, when the, you know, when that time comes that uh, I have to be, uh, you know, subjected, 
to whatever the law is going to scrutinize about my past, that is going to happen with my full cooperation. Okay, but that does not take away my desire to be able to make a difference going forward, and that's what I have always tried to be. Um, okay, um, I am. Uh, okay, the issue of the RFMF that you are raising uh, is very similar to uh, to one of the questions that was raised earlier. earlier sorry, I've forgotten the name of the lady that asked it. And my answer to that was that they have every right to, you know, to question that because, and I, I said as an answer to her question is that undeniably that the RFMF, the military in Fiji, has played uh, a significant role, you know, in, um, in, in the coup governments, uh, in the coups of the parts from 1987, 2000 and 2006. So that is something that is always hanging above the institution, and then it clouds people also like me. And of course, when, when people like me want to try and make uh, a difference, it clouds people's judgment, and I accept that totally, and that, that's fine, because that is a choice that people have to make about me going forward. Obviously, many, you know, have, many have chosen to, to believe me, which is the reason why I'm in Parliament today under NSP, okay? despite my past. And, and I'm not going to I'm not going to try and you know hide behind that in terms of the role. I, I gave a very long story the last time when somebody asked me why why I came back to Fiji, uh, because when the coup happened 2006, I I was in Australia. Uh, I'd been away from Fiji for a long time. In fact, I'd been away from Fiji from 2004. I've been studying mostly, and I've been on secondment overseas, even up to 2006 when the coup happened. I was. Uh, um, at the Australian Defence College and the University of New South Wales. And I had to find my family uh, who did not want me to come back here. But I do not want to repeat the story that I gave the last time. Obviously, I spoke to a mentor of mine who is in Fiji today, Father Alan Finn, and he told me, well, you know, maybe you should come back. We come back, and he said, come back and be the soft voice because there's a lot of hardness here. So... Like I said, I walked into the government um, with eyes wide open. Obviously, I was not quite aware of, you know, all the happenings that was happening prior to 2006. You know, I believe um, uh, that I could make a difference, and that's what I did. I tried my best. Obviously, my best was not enough. Um, if you spoke to people in civil society at the time, particularly around 2013, um, 2013, 2014, I had created this roundtable dialogue with the United Nations, and it involved all most of the political parties, opposition political parties, uh, civil society, NGOs, the church, trying to prepare, you know, force the government, uh, you know, to hold elections and, you know, allowing a greater voice for the people to participate in what was a very, you know, a very um, tough military government that was not listening. So I did those little, little bits, you know, to try and build, to engage. Uh, I, I, you know, in, in, in your answer in terms of my integrity as a person and whether people should choose me, um, I think I've tried as much as I can within the room that is allowable under our current law to demonstrate that I can make a difference. Um, uh, 
Uh, in so much as to say that, you know, I think probably I tried too hard because I get arrested for it and, you know, get uh, chucked away with the police and everything else. But that does not stop me. Uh, but I will continue to do that. Um, I hope that I am able to, uh, what do you call, motivate people enough to believe that I am here for good. But, you know, I would like to contribute into the future. Uh, of course, my political life only, you know, is guaranteed only up until the next election. So I have not even decided that I'm going to stand. Uh, you know, I, uh, I still need to go through that process. But I can only do my best uh, uh, in the meantime. And it's up to the people whether they want to believe me or not, because there are other alternatives. But uh, as I told, there's a... There's, um, there was a lady who came apologizing to me that she did not vote for me. Okay, there was uh, an Indonesian lady. And I told her, you know, hey, listen, you know, I, I would defend your very right not to vote for me. But I want that space to create this space I've been talking about, this freedom space, talking about that, uh, that you are able to exercise your right freely, even if that, if that right that you will exercise means that you're not going to choose me as your elected representative. So that's as far as I would go. Uh, thank you. Thank you, uh, Mr. Tindu. Sorry, just a follow-up question. Uh, you know, you've been a career military uh, officer. Tell us, what is it about the institution that uh, continue, continues to uh, challenge our democracy in Fiji? What is it? And, and you know, what can we change about that institution so that we don't have to have coup again in future? Yes, I think it's in the leaders, unfortunately. It is in the leaders. No, no, no coup happens without the commander, without someone leading it. Eh? It is a complete uh, overall. We need to completely overall... Uh, you know, um, uh, it's one thing I, I also cannot understand quite fully because like officers like me and many others uh, that have conducted, you know, coups in the past have been students of some of the best military colleges in the world of modern democracies and understand the role. But have yet, you know, um, I, I can also say that I don't think any coup in Fiji ever happened uh, independent of any civilian involvement. That has always been, you know. So I think it is in the professionalism of the officers that command the force to say to people who come up and, uh, you know, persuade them to take over a legitimately elected government to say, no, 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 stop. Okay? Wait for the elections. Go and dialogue. So that's the kind of um, attitude or perhaps responsibility that commanders of our forces need to exercise without succumbing to political pressure. Um, but um, that uh, I don't think any any takeover in Fiji in the past, you know, has been able to happen without the active role of the military the participation. So. Uh, those that are in leadership and in command should exercise that, you know, the, the proper role of the military under democratically, you know, in a, in a democratic state. And then just tell the people to go away, you know, report them to the police or something.
without participating themselves. Mm-hmm. Because some have even gone, you know, to as far as, you know, um, um, suggesting that the military should be removed because it, because of the role that it has played, you know, in removing democracies in the past. That is the subject of a dialogue. You know, that does, just does not happen over, a, you know, over a short time. They need people need to talk about it, and then, then again, there is this problem. People are afraid to talk about it because they fear they might get victimized. You know, but we need to, you know, uh, those of us who are in leadership today must be able to, you know, to dialogue around the space whereby a political, uh, what do you call, a government can come into place that will allow that space for people to discuss these issues. And then the military really should be part of that into the future, talking about its own future, especially when the people, you know, seem to perceive it as being, you know, you know, part of the cause of, uh, of, of why democracy has never really survived in this, in this country. And even more so, I, I, I talked about this earlier, now they have a constitutional role because it's being allowed for under the constitution. So dialogue needs to happen around that. Um, because, you know, you have to, um, you need to be bold enough and be courageous enough to cause the change and talk about it freely. That's, that's, that conversation is not happening. That's why, you know, I'm, I'm glad that around these places we are able to do that. Now, uh, we are currently now at exactly 10 o'clock and I'm going to take the last question from the floor. And uh, after that, I'm going to take the last question from the inbox. So, Ben Devetta, I think you have uh, your final opportunity now to ask the question before we go on uh, uh, into the last question from the inbox. So, Ben, uh, you have the floor. Ben, I... Thank you, Honorable Tiko Duandua, for this for another opportunity. So I'm just going to uh, take us back to the, I think we've had, um, ext- we've had an extensive uh, discussion surrounding uh, military coups. So j- my question is that, do, do you think that downsizing the military would be a step towards reducing chances of future military coups? Now, I understand that this is a, um, it's a complex issue because, um, I mean, because we're dealing with those that have um, previously and proudly served the institution, um, the uniform that they've worn and for our country, um, you know, and many of us are able to live in peace. And of course, through the existing um, UN peacekeeping. And, you know, we also have uh, livelihoods and families uh, that depends on these um, institutions. So, and uh, no, because for me, um, just I'm just thinking out loud because of how we can, uh, you know, reduce them. If if it, if there's um, an idea to reduce, maybe perhaps we can absorb um, absorb um, military officers, you know, probably in other state services or ministries, or where you know where their expertise can be put to full use. And a great example for this is during uh, disaster response. Because, you know, to be honest, the Honorable uh, Tikondondo is that there is no guarantee 
is that we will no longer have coups in the future because precedents have been set and apart from uh, George Spade, there are others um, that are protected through the immunity provision and the cycle can continue. So as a former high-ranking military officer, do you think that downsizing the military could be an option? Ibnak. Ibnawalu Ben, freely thinking that is um, one, one issue to consider, the size, eh? Obviously, and, and we say this because um, uh, we, we look at the, the state of our nation today and the priorities of our nation in terms of health, you know, growing the economy, education, housing, uh, and all that. Um, they all point to the fact that uh, these important things for the people um, deserve the the you know the whole attention of the government and the government resource to uh, to look after it obviously the rfmf today and the government uh, because this is a government policy has a very very heavy uh, peace uh, peace support operation commitment and uh, and you will know ben that there is a separate segment of that uh, there is a separate um, head altogether in the national budget, okay. So I, I I cannot give you off the top of my head how much is it, but but the budget of the the, the RFMF budget continues uh, is, is is you know is um, is significant, and has always been the subject of a lot of debate given all the other areas of needs. Now, <clears throat> I said earlier that no coup in Fiji or no takeover of an elected government has been without uh, military assistance. 87, you name it, it, it did happen up to 2006. So the people have always had this negativity about it. Now I'll still add also that there is, um, there is great benefit as well in keeping, uh, you know, a good, um, what you call a professional Navy, you know, for the benefit of our exclusive economic zone that we need. You talk about natural disaster, we need a good engineer uh, capability, capacity that needs to look after that now. But whether we need to have uh, a big standing army, you know, per se, and uh, the organizations that we currently have within the military today uh, and for its role, that needs to be reviewed, okay? The role of the military today, given what we have. And um, of course, the the size of the military throughout the world uh, is always reviewed all the time depending on the need of the nation. So yes, it can be reviewed. It should be reviewed. At the moment, there is no proper review. So I know as a standing member of the Standing Committee of uh, Foreign Affairs and Defense, we've been consistently asking for the National Security Strategy and the Defense White Paper. So these are two essential, and, uh, two essential documents that uh, uh, what they do, they guide the way in which the military uh, is supposed to be performing its role. It has a constitutional role. 
Now, it we need the size of the force needs to be defined so that it is consistent with its role. Some people, uh, you know, are having a debate about that role, but at the moment it is in the law. Okay. Now there is no doubt about its history, on what it has done in the past, and like, and I agree with you. Nobody knows what the future brings. We can only shape the future by what we do now. So if, and I will go back to the answer that I have been giving to all of the questions that have come in tonight about the military today. I am saying that there needs to be a conversation and a dialogue around it. The space needs to be created. Okay, if for, in, if for no other reason, it is because for the fear of it. That's one of the, one of the ladies, she spoke tonight and said, oh, we can't talk freely because, you know, um, because we fear the military and what it has done. I mean, this is coming from the people of Fiji. Why should we be fearing our own military in that regard? That should not happen. So some, so a dialogue needs to happen around it. And I want to encourage it, so it's, I'm studying it with this kind of space because not many people want to talk about it. And I thank you, you know, uh, Ben, you know, for people like you who are able to ask me this question and for me to be able to address it this way because it is something that people worry about. But we cannot continue to worry about and then we cannot continue to allow people to take advantage of the military. That's one of my biggest hate. I've said that already. I do not like people who take advantage of the military for their own political benefit. That should not happen in the future because that is always leads to, to people taking advantage of what the military can do. But I would say, Ben, you know, the short answer is that cannot happen now. And we need a change. The elections are coming up. And I think after the election, if there is a change, then there we are able to create this dialogue and this space to talk about it. Sorry, that's a long way to, to answer your question, but I think it's important. All right. Thank you very much, everybody, for listening. I think you answered the last question as well oh. in your rather long question, uh, answer. Uh, but thank you, everybody, for listening in. And uh, we will be back uh, when we uh, agree on a time. We'll uh, tell everybody about it. And uh, Mr. President, any last words to say, send people off tonight? Yeah, first of all, um, tonight I thank everyone that participated. And I thank you for those that actually called in to to ask a question. And um, and those of you that uh, tweeted your questions, like a written questionnaire. And you have definitely rose to the challenge uh, and I asked you to ask me really question, you know, hard questions tonight. And boy, weren't they hard also? They were really tough but good questions. I hope that I have been able to answer some of those questions for you. If I have not, uh, and I'm sorry if I have not been clear enough, but you can always, you know, uh, send me your questions um, about uh, what uh, you want to ask of me and what you... I want me to, and, and, and I will try my best to to answer them for you. But for tonight, you know, I would like to say, thank you so much to everybody that, uh, that you know, is listening in tonight and uh, those of you that ask questions. I, 
I hope that I will be able to continuously engage with you uh, this way into the future. Um, like I said, my political future is uncertain, uh, but I would like to create this space where some others can take this dialogue into the future. It's something we can start now, not wait for the elections, but start now. And that's why I am doing this. Um, and, um, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm here, and, 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 and we at the NFP continue to advocate for these things. And um, we hope that uh, you will feel even more free in the future. You feel more comfortable, uh, more free in that manner to ask me these hard questions. And, and, and I don't mind, you know. Uh, um, listening to you and uh, doing my level best to answer your issues for you, even though some of these, you know, these issues we are discussing tonight um, are both your wish and my wish, because it's really not up to us right now to take the lead, but we can definitely start the discussion and ask those who have a greater lead than us to actually do something substantive about it so that um, it can, you know, and, and then we can all go forward as, um, as a nation that has recovered and a nation that can pretty much deal with itself on these very hard and uh, delicate issues that we have talked about tonight. So, Vikram Nikatsara, thank you so much for your participation tonight and uh, I wish you a very nice weekend and a good evening tonight. And Nabalevu, Danabat, thank you so much. Nisamote. Good night, everybody. Vinaka.